Well, looking today at unity, and we begin with the official, you might say, textbook definition or dictionary definition of unity, a condition of harmony, accord, the state of being united or joined as a whole, unification, a state of being in full agreement. Now notice that the idea of full agreement is relegated to the third of the three definitions. And we look at a biblical example of unity. We start in Mark chapter 2 verse 14. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, you might wonder, well, what does the calling of Levi or Matthew have to do specifically with unity? And that's a great question. And if you give me a few minutes, we'll get there. All right? But I love this depiction because I often wonder, did Matthew... When Jesus points and says, follow me, did he look back and kind of point to himself and like, who, me? You want me to follow you? Because after all, what was a tax collector? Well, okay, Matthew or Levi is a Jewish guy, but he's done something that a lot of Jews didn't appreciate. He kind of got cozy with Rome. He kind of got in with the Roman occupancy. And so he made his living collecting taxes for the empire. But how did tax collectors really make their money? By charging more than they had to. And so they would line their pockets with the excess... And then if you really wanted the, the, the choice job as tax collector, like that guy we read about in Luke's gospel who was a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. Because then what's Zacchaeus getting? Well, like a mob boss, you might say, all those other tax collectors are kind of kicking up to him. And so you can imagine that Matthew's fellow Jews don't care much for what he's doing. That his living comes directly out of their pockets. And the idea that they have to pay taxes to begin with is a bit resentful. I mean, let's face it. Has the human condition changed any in all these thousands of years, right? I mean, is April 15th the date that we just look forward to, right? It's like, oh yeah, it's the beginning of the year. I'm going to get to pay my taxes soon. Yeah, now some of you get refunds every year, and I'm happy for you, okay? I, I used to get refunds once upon a time. Uh, but now, now I pay in. And so the question just 
to us is when I'm heading off to see the tax preparer is you know what's it going to be? Are we going to are we going to pay in little or are we going to pay in much? Is it going to is it going to hurt? You know, do we write a check or do we have to transfer from savings? So what's it going to be this year? And so no, nobody really loves paying taxes. You can make the argument that they're necessary to have roads and and all a lot of the services that we enjoy in a municipality. But nonetheless, Matthew is a guy that's not looked upon favorably by his fellow Jews. And he's probably used to it. He's probably used to the cold stares, the cold shoulder, you might say, about people not greeting him as warmly as maybe they once did. And so, yeah, Jesus walks into the tax collector's booth, looks at him and says, hey, follow me. But what does he do? He gets up and he follows him. Maybe you heard me say it before. Scholars believe that Matthew's the guy who was the wealthiest of the apostles simply because of his vocation. He's also the guy that financially at least gave up the most when he walked out of that job, walked out of that booth to follow Jesus that day. Now, we move on a little later in Mark's Gospel and we look at chapter 3 beginning with verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that they might and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, a couple things might get your attention there. The fact that other gospel writers don't specify this, but Mark, for whatever reason, does. The fact that the sons of Zebedee, James and John get this kind of cool nickname, Sons of Thunder. You know, so that, that's kind of eye-catching when you read that. The fact that Judas is going to be the one that betrays him, I think all the gospel writers point that out. But there's one guy in here. Because people in the ancient world were often given these names, they were often known by either who their dad was, the son of something, Greg, son of Jerry, okay? Or, you know, I grew up in Winchester, Tennessee, so Greg of Winchester, just like we have, you know, Paul of Tarsus. And so they were known by either where they were from, or who their dad was, because that helped differentiate them from someone else who shared the same name. But there's one guy in here that is given 
we're actually told his political party, basically. Simon, the zealot. Well, if you ever pondered that much, all the times that you've heard that there's this one guy who was an apostle, his name was Simon, and he was a zealot. Well, people can have zeal for all kinds of things. But if you were a Jewish zealot, it means that you were part of an aggressive political party whose concern for the national and religious life of Jewish people led them to despise even Jews who sought peace and conciliation with Roman authorities. This group, my research says, was in complete opposition to Roman imperialism and anyone connected to it. That there were extremists among the zealots. Now we don't know that Simon was necessarily one of the extremists. We're not given that information, so we don't want to assume anything. But there were extremists among the zealots that turned to terrorism, even assassination, and became known as Sicarii, which means dagger men. They frequented public places with hidden daggers to strike down persons friendly to Rome. Now you think about that for a second, because Jesus has followers. But among these followers... He chooses just 12. Now we know in Scripture there's a place where he sends out 70. One place says 72. But So we know that he has dozens of followers. But this dozen, the 12, he designates as apostles. And we know what his plan is in naming them, in asking them to follow him is that he is going to teach them more closely than anyone else. They're going to get a front row seat at what it looks like for the Son of God, God in the flesh, to display the signs and wonders. They're going to be right there to hear all the teaching. But among these twelve, who does he choose, church? Someone who hates Rome with every fiber of his being and is, doesn't hide it, is known as a zealot, and someone who works for Rome. Now, I'd like to know, I'd like to have been a fly on the wall for some of those gatherings among the twelve. Did Matthew and Simon have some conversations along the way? You know, was there, you know, how in the world could you, good Jewish boy, go to work for Rome and require your fellow Jews to pay taxes to that evil empire? Or, hey, man, you know, why are you so angry with Rome? After all, they protect us and they build some pretty good roads. If you don't know your world history, that's kind of what the ancient Romans were known for is their infrastructure, okay? 
But yeah, two guys on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And yet Jesus calls both of them to serve his kingdom. Now if you want to know what unity looks like, that's a pretty good picture of biblical unity. You think Matthew and Simon the Zealot were in complete agreement? I'm going to say probably not. But could they put their differences aside long enough to follow the Savior of the world and learn some things? To be able to roll up their sleeves and work for a common good? I'm going to say absolutely they could. Because they did. And so we think about unity. That's unity to me. And for Jesus to have known this about these guys, and yet he pulls the two of them into the group together, he's showing us all these years later what unity can look like. That people can work alongside people that have different political views, that have different interests, that have different levels of education, that have very different ways of having been brought up, very different kind of relationships with their family. And the list can go on and on and on. (coughs) And so it wasn't that long ago that we stood here in this auditorium with people who worship differently than us. And I got to say, when we first started the event, the the community-wide prayer service, uh, our congregation was the minority in the room. Excuse me, the majority in the room. That has changed. Because the room has grown. Well, the room hasn't grown. The occupancy of the room has grown over the years. Now, there's room for more. And I look forward, praise God, if he chooses to bless us with more and more people in the years to come. But we had well over 200 people. Didn't even really get an accurate count. But well over 200 people at this year's event. And I had people... I had someone mention to me in a local grocery store yesterday what an amazing event that was. So days later, and people are still saying, Brother Greg, boy, that night was amazing. Why was that night amazing, church? I mean, people in a church building, there's nothing amazing about that. We're doing it right now. We do it every Sunday morning. We sang songs. People do that every time they get together to worship, don't they? We prayed. But we know what was amazing, don't we? Is that we all did it together. People who think differently. People 
people who worship differently. People who, yes, even to some degree interpret Scripture a bit differently. But what do we all have in common? At some point, we felt Jesus say, Come, follow me. And we did it. And that's what we have in common. Is that Jesus is Lord. And so, that's what it looks like. If you were in the room that night, I can't imagine that you didn't feel it. You felt unity. You felt what it felt like to be unified. In John 17, Jesus has spent time in the upper room. They have celebrated the Passover meal and uh, he has spent some time teaching the twelve. His public ministry ended some time before this and now he is just pouring in these last hours before he is arrested and then eventually crucified. He is taking advantage of this time to pour himself into the twelve, into the apostles. And so he has not yet, he prays this prayer in the upper room and then he is about to leave and cross the Kidron Valley and go over to the Mount of Olives which is where he will eventually be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so in John 17 this prayer that he prays in the upper room is recorded. And he starts off praying for those closest followers of his. But then in verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may, be, may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete what church? Unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now notice back in verse 23, after he says, brought to complete unity, Then what does he say next? Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, church, why is unity important? So that the world will know 
that Jesus is the Son of God. That is why unity is important. Another definition of unity that Mrs. Castanito's fourth graders in Cary, North Carolina came up with. Unity means that we acknowledge our differences. And this is a good thing, they say. It also means to show respect and kindness to everybody. When we get along and help others, great things happen. What do you think, church? Is that a pretty good definition of unity? That the fact that we have differences, is that a good thing? Man, imagine a world where all of us are exactly the same. That's not a world I want to imagine for very long. It's been said before. I agree with it. I'll repeat it once again. If any two people agree 100% of the time, one of them is no longer necessary. Think about that for a moment. If two people agree 100% of the time, one of them is no longer necessary. I don't know about you, but I want to be a necessary human being. Okay? I want to be necessary. I want to matter. I want to contribute. I want to bless. Now, I don't know about your households. I don't agree with my son on everything. I sure don't agree with my wife on everything. Right? But yet, we maintain a household. We maintain civility. And we love each other. We, we have unity within the household. I would suspect that your households are the same way. You don't agree on everything. Some things you've discussed repeatedly and you still don't agree on everything. But you still love each other. You see things from a different perspective. But you still love each other. And that is what God calls us to do. God calls us to love people even if we don't agree with them. To love people even if we are different than them. Last night, we had 68 men gather in this room for our men's night. David Skidmore from Murfreesboro was fantastic. The message he brought was wonderful. Now, at my best count, and I may have missed someone, so if I'm off, I might not be off by a lot. But of those 68 men, 12 of them were from this congregation. So 56 men from outside of the Hohenwald Church of Christ. A good number of them worship in different kind of churches. Churches that don't worship the same way we worship. Churches that, yes, may interpret Scripture differently than we do in some places. And I know David wouldn't mind me sharing that, but after it was over, most everyone had left the auditorium, and he was talking to me, and he said, Greg, he said, about halfway through my presentation, you know, I realized, okay, I thought I'd made the drive from Murfreesboro to bless this group that I was invited to come speak to. 
And he said, and then I realized. He said, as I had this sort of almost out-of-body experience, as he kind of jokingly put it, he said, I realized that God brought me here to be blessed by the people in this room. You see, I don't think I'm stretching when I say that what he experienced was the unity in this room. That's what he experienced. And I would guess that he's probably not invited to a lot of places where there's a lot of that kind of difference coming together in the room. I've heard that guy preach to over 6,000 people. But 6,000 people of the same tribe, you might say. 6,000 or so people that have the same kind of sign on the front of their building that worship the same way each and every Sunday when they gather. Am I saying we do anything wrong? Absolutely not. What I'm saying is that the worldwide body of Christ is bigger than us. What I'm saying is that we have managed, praise God, to create an atmosphere where people that don't worship exactly as we do feel welcomed here. We need to keep that going, church. Because that's special. I don't hand you this message this morning as some kind of look at us, pat ourselves on the back, self-congratulatory kind of moment. That's not what this is about. But this is about one Sunday where we pause for some perspective about what we have here. Because it doesn't go on everywhere. And I appreciate the shepherds for allowing us to create this kind of environment. Where we say, this is how we believe, this is what we do. But we are going to do everything we can to make all of you feel welcomed here. The church, unity isn't about coming together for a men's night or a prayer service, coming together for these individual events and we experience some unity and then we go on with our lives. The unity that Jesus prayed about, and let's not lose sight of it, If it wasn't important, he wouldn't have prayed about it in that lengthy prayer before he left for the garden. He knows what's about to go down when he's praying that prayer, church. And he takes the time to pray for unity among believers. Because if the unchurched world sees fractured Christians, then the unchurched world is less attracted to Christianity. It's when the unchurched world witnesses unity that they are more drawn 
So the message, the good news, that Jesus Christ shed His blood for our sins. And that is why unity matters. And that is why we are implored to practice unity not when we gather a couple of times a year, but in all of our lives. As we conclude our time together, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues... Put on love, which binds them all together in what, church? Perfect unity. May God help us to be people who can do that. To clothe, our, to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And to bear with each other and to forgive each other. God is calling us to perfect unity. If you are with us this morning and you have not yet taken advantage of the invitation, the invitation to become a child of God, to put on Christ in baptism, as Scripture says it, then in a moment we're going to stand together, we're going to begin singing a song, and we invite you to come forward. All we're going to ask you is one simple question. Do you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And with a simple affirmative response, a simple yes, then we make the waters of baptism available to you so that you can begin your Christian walk as a new creation. If you're with us this morning and you've got something weighing on you, something that you're dealing with, some of the messiness of life, and you would appreciate the prayers of this congregation, then we invite you to come forward that we can pray for you about that concern. Let's stand together and sing. I've